0: Well, this morning in Flock Watchers, we want to explore how we as leaders can create safe environments, safe pastures, if you will, that will allow the people we lead to flourish. You know, Mike Drowley, Captain Mike Drowley, I think understood the significance of his leadership. He and his wingmen were flying. Uh, above the mountainous region of Afghanistan in their A-10 warthogs. When they heard the call over the radio, troops in contact, troops in contact. The clouds, they obscured his view of the terrain in the valley just 10,000 feet below. It was at that point dryly decided he would risk life and limb to drop below the cloud deck using his night vision goggles, an extremely dangerous maneuver for even the most veteran of pilots, but Dryley was no average pilot. Sensing the danger his men were facing below on the ground, Dryley flew his A-10 warthog into the unknown, not knowing what To expect, relying completely upon his instruments in front of him, and then looking at twenty-year-old Soviet maps of the mountains to know when to pull up, Dryly broke through the clouds, less than a thousand feet above the valley floor. Uh, As he pulled up, he noticed uh, sniper fire—fire coming with tracer bullets from the sides of the valley, aimed. Uh, right in the middle of the valley, right where special forces had been pinned down. Pressing the trigger on his Gatlin gun, uh, dryly began counting. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. He had only seconds to pull up before smacking the mountains in front of him. And he he turned, experiencing the G-forces that would cause an average man to lose consciousness, in order to make a second run. But he heard nothing over the radio. I mean, was, was the radio operator uh, killed? I mean, or, or was the special forces team completely wiped out? Or worse yet, in the dark of night, had he actually wiped out his own men? The silence, he said, was deafening. And then came the call. Good hits. Good hits. Keep coming. Keep coming and keep coming. Drowley did. As he turned, he started another pass, counting to keep from hitting the mountains in front of him. And then he banked again and started another run and another and another and another until he was completely out of ammunition. He took his A-10 warthog, aimed it toward the clouds to rendezvous with his wingman who was circling above. He started to debrief him on what had happened. He said, oh, never mind, just follow me. And the two A-10 warthogs, flying just three feet apart, wing to wing, disappeared into the soupy clouds. When they broke through on the other end, they started their run. Uh, this, time, did, uh, this time, dryly did the counting, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And his wingmen laid down the fire. That day, 22 men went home safe because of the actions of Mike Drowley, there was not a single casualty. Now, Mike Drowley risked life and limb so that others might live. He didn't do it for a performance bonus. He, he didn't do it to get a promotion. He, he wasn't even expecting an award at the company picnic. So why did he do it? Well, for Drowley, it was easy. His Actions came out of an environment, a culture ingrained in the lives of men and women in the military, a culture of service brought about by an environment of cooperation and trust with one another. When asked, Why did you do it? Dryly said, Well, oh, that's simple. They would have done the same for me. Now, I don't know a CEO in America that wouldn't give his right arm for an organization full of men and women like Mike Drowley. But men like Drowley, they they can't be hired. You can't find them. They're built. They're the natural result of building the right kind of culture. Now, that's what we want to talk about this morning, the right kind of culture. And it's part of what's been covered in the book, uh, The Way of the Shepherd, we've been looking at for the past several weeks. So whether you're a leader of a family, a leader of a sports team, or a leader of a Fortune 500 company, one principle a leader has got to embrace in order to develop a healthy culture is that he has got to make sure his pasture is safe. In other words, a good leader creates an environment where people can flourish. You know, the military has understood this for a long time. They, they have learned that when people are forced to defend themselves from dangers outside the organization, that organization becomes less able to face dangers from within. In other words, if you don't feel supported or secure at work, there's no way you're going to give your best for work. In fact, it was Marine General George Flynn who was asked, General, what makes the Marines so great? And without hesitation he said, oh, that's easy. Officers eat last. In other words, my men aren't there to serve me. I'm there to serve them, uh, to look out for them, to give them whatever it takes so that they can be the best that they can be. Now, that's the job of a leader. Did you know that's exactly what Jesus told His disciples and what God desires to do for us? In fact, in Luke 22, after hearing His disciples argue with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus interrupts their argument and He says this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, they love the beauty of their titles, their grand titles. But notice what he says next. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. You see, what Jesus understood and General Flynn had to discover through experience is that when people feel safe and protected by their leader, their natural response is to give their blood, sweat, and tears so that together they can accomplish something they would never be able to by themselves. In fact, leadership guru Simon Singh says this, When we believe that those inside the organization will look out for us, it creates an environment for the free exchange of information and effective communication. Then he goes on. He says, this is fundamental to driving innovation, preventing problems from escalating, and for making organizations better equipped to defend themselves from the outside dangers and to seize opportunities. You see, whether it's a family or whether it's a company, keeping your pasture safe means that you've got to recognize people not as commodities to be managed, but individuals to be developed. Not as commodities to control, but as individuals to grow. You know, that's exactly the way God sees us. And approaches us. In fact, you can see it so clearly in Psalm 23, a psalm you might be familiar with. In fact, in this particular psalm, God is called our shepherd. Notice what he says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Did you notice the care and attention the shepherd gives his sheep there in those short verses? Did you know sheep don't don't rest easily? That's why the psalmist says he makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, it's because sheep are easily alarmed; they're easily put on edge; they're easily made nervous. In fact, in a panic, a sheep will. A group of sheep will just run over one another, trying to get away from whatever has startled them. In fact, Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, says this, Even a rabbit suddenly bounding from behind a bush can stampede a whole flock. One sheep runs in fright and a dozen will bolt with it in blind fear. Not waiting to see what frightened them, the the shepherd then has to corral the sheep and gently but firmly force them to lie down and feed quietly on the grass that's beneath their feet. And, And Keller goes on to say that it's only the shepherd that can actually get his sheep to lie down. To rest, to relax, to be content. It's because the sheep have learned to trust the shepherd because they know the shepherd knows how uh, to create a safe pasture. You see, when a shepherd enters a mountainous region where he wants his sheep to graze, he doesn't just release his sheep uh, into the grass. No, he he pins them up first and he goes throughout the entire area checking out the surroundings. He's looking for any kind of poisonous weeds that the, the sheep would be tempted to eat. And he ends up bending over and pulling those. I mean, he surveys the entire area looking for anything that might be toxic to his sheep. But while he's looking for weeds, he's also checking the pasture for small holes. They can be burrows uh, for a type of viper. This viper lives below the surface and if disturbed will come up as a sheep is grazing just above his burrow and strike the sheep in the nose and the bite is painful. It can cause inflammation, even death at times. And so the shepherd will be pulling weeds and looking for small holes. And when he finds them, he'll take a flask of oil from his belt and he'll pour a little bit down the hole. So when the sheep is grazing and the viper wants to attack, it can't. Its smooth body can't pass over the slippery oil in the hole. He's made the pasture a safe place for his sheep. So how does a leader in business give his people a safe pasture so they can flourish? Now, that's the question. You know, one of the things I've learned uh, in life and through leading two different churches is that a good leader will always remove annoying aggravations. In fact, in the book, The Way of the Shepherd, that author suggests Three frustrating irritations that can exasperate the members of your team, whether that team's a family or a company. In fact, one of those is mentioned is in uh, Psalm 23, verse 4. Notice it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, one of the ways a shepherd will keep his pasture safe is to keep his sheep free from fear, free from fear. And Now, in the business world, uh, there are a lot of dangers out there, I mean, dangers from the outside of the company. I mean, it may be the ups and downs of the stock market. It, it may be old tech, a new technology that's made old technology obsolete. It could be a competitor that's stealing your customer. So there are dangers from the outside, but in every company, there are fears inside the organization. It could be layoffs that follow a bad quarter or a bad year, or it could be the fear of intimidation or uh, it could be the fear of public humiliation. I mean, whatever it is, one of the ways you as a leader can keep your people safe is learn how to minimize their fear by keeping your people well informed. Well informed. In fact, an interesting Gallup poll was taken a Uh, In 2013, listen to what they discovered. They they discovered that when leaders completely ignore their employees, completely ignore them, 40% of their employees disengage from their work, 40%. But when bosses criticize their employees on a regular basis, only 22% actively disengage. In other words, if you're getting criticized... You conclude, well, at least somebody's noticing, so you engage a little bit more. But if that leader recognizes one strength in the employee and rewards them verbally in some way, only 1% actively disengage. That shows you the power that you wield as a leader. That's the power of your words. I mean, keep people well informed, They begin. you begin eliminating uncertainty in the organization. I mean, even if it's bad news, they need to hear it from you first. If they are confident that when you know, they'll know, then they can rest easily and they're less susceptible to panic. Like sheep. They're less susceptible to the rumors that run around the break room. In fact, studies show that nothing will destroy productivity quicker in a company than uncertainty. But keeping a company informed is one thing. Keeping individuals informed is another. And another huge irritant, another huge uncertainty that can frustrate people is when you do end-of-the-year reviews. A good leader will keep his people up to date every month or every three months so that at the end of the year they're not surprised by a bad review. Plus, if you keep your people up to date, then they have time to correct any issues before the end of the year. A good leader keeps his people well informed. That's how he keeps his pasture safe. But the second way he keeps his pasture safe is he keeps it free from rivalry. From rivalry. Now, when people in the workplace begin working against one another, it keeps them from working together as a team. In fact, did you know "team" is one of the most powerful words in the English language? I mean, even the animal world understands the power of team. I mean, geese understand the power of team. Wildlife biologists tell us that they fly in a when they fly in a V formation, they can fly seventy-one percent further than they could on their own. Draft horses understand the power of team. At a Midwestern festival not long ago, the championship draft horse pulled a sled weighing 4,500 pounds. Second place finisher pulled one weighing uh, 3,900 pounds. Then someone had the idea, let's harness the two big fellows together in a team and see what they could pull. They pulled a sled weighing 12,000 pounds. Now what geese and draft horses seem to naturally understand sheep are oblivious to. I mean sheep like people tend to butt heads. They just do it naturally it's no telling how many companies have been brought to their knees uh, by competing employees, employees competing with one another within the organization, rather than focusing on the competition that's going on outside the organization. So the question becomes, how do you minimize competition within? And I want to give you two suggestions. I mean, the first is a good leader will infuse every position with importance. Every position. In fact, uh, that's exactly what Paul did when he wrote the letter to the church in Galatia. The church is there. Did you know the first century church almost split apart because of rivalry from within? I mean, they had Jews pitted against Greeks. You had slaves pitted against free men, pitted against women. And it's into that environment that Paul speaks in one of his very first letters to the the churches, and he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ, meaning we are all equally significant in the eyes of our leader. No one is heads above anyone else. We all have significance. Now, what Paul knew and what every leader needs to understand is that people are less likely to compete with one another when they know that their leader sees what they do having significance. And a good leader will let his employees know that they have a vital role to play and And he'll call attention to it verbally in groups or in a large meeting in order to reinforce his opinion about how vital that role is. Uh, secondly, a good leader will call uh, chronic instigators from the flock. And we've all been around miserable people. Uh, people who feel like it's their mission in life uh, to make everyone else around them miserable and just to suck the life right out of the team. You've been in groups with people like that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls people like that ravenous wolves and warns us uh, of what they can do to the flock. And and what I've learned and what I think Jesus points to for us is that conflict resolution and workplace rivalries always suck out an enormous amount of time on a team. So a wise leader is going to be one who beforehand begins aligning his team according to four significant criteria. I mean, there's competence, there's character, chemistry, And culture. We've all been in situations where we've looked at someone on paper and they look outstanding. Their resume is fantastic. I I mean, they are competent. They've got skills. Uh, But when it comes to character, you put them on your team and they start acting like a rock star. I mean, they have no integrity. Uh, uh, Nothing will cause a team to implode quicker than something like that. I mean, character and competence, they're critical, but chemistry and culture, well, that's critical. And by chemistry, what I'm talking about is the relational connection, that gravitational pull of engagement with one another. And by culture, I'm talking about their fit with the organization and the philosophy and where it's going. So a great leader is one who keeps his people free from fear, his pasture free from rivalry, but the final thing he does is he keeps his pasture free from pests. Pests. I mean, a good shepherd knows if he doesn't keep his sheep free from pests, he's not going to have a herd for very long at all. My wife, Patty, is is mild-mannered, and it? it always surprises people to learn that when she was in college, she was a winter wilderness camper. I'm talking Wisconsin winter, 30 below zero, that kind of thing. She went out once and got hypothermia. On another occasion, uh, her wisdom teeth got impacted, and so she took her jackknife and slid open her gums to relieve the pressure. On another occasion... uh, It was in the early spring, she and her survivalist friends decided it'd be fun to camp out on a deserted island in Lake Superior. So they had a boat drop them off, and they were trapped there for three days. It just so happened that weekend, there happened to be a hatch of black flies on that island. They kind of come in swarms, they bite, Uh, the bites hurt, they can get infected, trapped on an island, Filled with black flies, Patty said there were people in her group that were just screaming for relief. In fact, one time she looked down at her arm. It was just covered totally black with flies. She just had to brush them off like that. And the only relief, she said, came if you had the courage to kind of strip down to the basics and jump into 60-degree Lake Superior. Whoa! That's the only choices you had. Now, you need to know, that's what the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 23, when he says, you anoint my head with oil. You see, in the summer in Palestine, there's always a hatch of some kind of fly. Uh, There's bot flies, there are nose flies, there are... Heel flies, deer flies, even black flies—the flies, the, the, the flies that, that are particularly dangerous to sheep are nose flies. Uh, they buzz around a sheep's head. They—they they are looking to lay their eggs in the um, soft, uh, moist membrane, mucous membrane of the nose. And if they're successful, and it hatches, what emerges is a, lar- is a larva, and that will begin burrowing into the soft tissue of the nose. It creates a major Major irritation, not to mention one well of a headache with the sheep. And, and so, uh, Keller in his book describes it this way. He says, For relief from the agonizing annoyance, sheep will deliberately beat their heads against trees, rocks, posts, or bush. They'll rub them in the soil and thrash around against woody growth in extreme cases of intense um, infestation, a sheep may even kill itself in a frenzied endeavor to gain respite from the aggravation. So at the first sign of erratic behavior, you know what a shepherd would do in Palestine? He, he would pull out a flask of home remedy, linseed oil and sulfur, and he would go pour that over the sheep's head for protection. Then he would take that mixture and use his fingers and rub it into the sheep's nose. It would kill the larva, thus freeing the sheep from excruciating pain and an annoying pest. You know, for years in the business world, we've often thought that the higher you move up on the corporate ladder, the higher the stress. In fact, we've got a name for it. It's called executive stress syndrome. So we're not surprised when a high-level executive kills over with a heart attack. And, and we've also concluded the the lower you are on the corporate ladder, the the lower your stress. In a in a study done, uh, it's called the Whitehall Studies. They were a landmark study done in England a few years ago. You know what they discovered? They discovered that the link between an employee's place on the corporate ladder and stress were actually inversely proportional. Inversely proportional. The higher up you go, the lower the stress. In other words, they discovered it wasn't the demands of the job that created the stress. You know what they found out created the most stress? The lack of having a sense of control over your job. In other words, the less control, the greater, the more the stress. Now, you read that study, you go, I don't know, maybe that was skewed. What well, did you know uh, in 2012, Harvard and then Stanford did a similar study? And they discovered exactly the same thing. It showed that leaders overall, high on the corporate ladder, their stress level was lower than those who reported to them. And they also discovered that the lower you are on the corporate ladder, the greater the uh, chance for uh, mental illness. So, So those who... Feel like they have control, who feel like they're empowered to do things at their level, uh, and make decisions. Those guys suffer a whole lot less stress than those who have to wait for approval, who have to do as they're told, who have to, who are forced to follow all the rules. In other words, it's the lack of control over responsibilities that becomes the fly that drive people in your organization crazy? Ever been in a room and one fly won't leave you alone? That's what they're talking about here. If you want to eliminate an annoying pest, then you've got to give your employees a sense of control and ownership of their jobs. You know what I've discovered in life? It's not the big things in life that drive you nuts, as much as it is the little Things, the annoying things that kind of work their way under your skin. You know, the shepherd you and I serve, he's certainly interested in the big things, uh, like loss of job or maybe a marriage that's thinking about divorce or, I mean, I mean it could be a medical report coming back from your doctor that's not very good. He's interested in the big things, but our shepherd is also interested in the smaller things. You, you, you see, our shepherd is infinite. There's nothing so big that he can't handle it. But just like our shepherd is infinitely big, did you know he's also infinitely small? There's nothing so small in your life that it doesn't escape his attention. I mean, it could be the irritating way your spouse plays with their food or the jealousy you feel when someone else gets a promotion. Just the little things. You see, God wants to be our shepherd in both. There's nothing so small in your life that your shepherd will not give you his full and undivided attention and help you walk through it. Yeah, I I discovered the the wonderful attention the shepherd gives even smaller things a few years ago. I'd resigned my position of a church that I'd planted 15 years earlier in Little Rock, Arkansas, and didn't have a place I was going for sure. And I felt like I I, I had a need to get a better handle on my strengths and weaknesses, so I decided to take a two-day inventory in Dallas, Texas. So I drove down to Dallas to take the inventory, I planned to stay with a friend, and that fell through at the last second. So when I got to Las Colinas, I had to figure out exactly where I was going to stay that night. Now, you got to remember, I lost my job a month earlier. I didn't have any income coming in, so I was being pretty frugal. And I had a coupon for a hotel in Las Colinas, a nice hotel, 60 bucks a night. So I showed up at the hotel, I talked to the, the clerk behind the desk, and he informed me, he said, I hate to tell you this, but that's only good for the weekend. And I can honor that tonight, but tomorrow night you'll have to pay the full price. I said, what was it? He said, 150 bucks a night. I'm going, I, I can do better than that. I know I can. So I, I excused myself, and I left, and I went down the road to find another hotel. Well, I found a Marriott, Marriott courtyard, and I went in, and it was 150 bucks a night, another hotel, 150 bucks a night. So I'm starting to think, you know I need to go back and probably lock in tonight at 60 bucks and worry about tomorrow as it comes. But on the way back, I noticed a hotel across the street from this one. I pulled in the parking lot this time. I sat in my car for a minute. And I decided to pray. I said, "God, I I know I don't deserve this, and I certainly don't want to presume upon you. But I also know you you love doing gracious things for your kids. So, would you would you get me a room for fifty bucks a night? <laughs> Amen. So I went in. There was a night clerk and. And I approached the desk. I said, you know, your competitor across the street would give me a room for 60 bucks a night. Would you match that? He looked down. He kind of, mm. well, I could tell he was uncomfortable. So I said, you know, i tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll stay two nights for 60 bucks a night. How about that? He said, okay. I don't know why it worked, but it just worked. And I was thinking, okay, 60 bucks, that's not 50, but it's better than the deal I had. And I'm, I'm certainly thankful to get that and... So he asked me my name, he was filling out the little card, and he, he asked me my address, my phone number, and then he asked me a question that was a little uncomfortable, and I thought it was a little weird. He said, who's your employer? Well, I wanted to be honest, I just resigned. That's a little embarrassing to say I don't have a job. And so I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I don't have one. I am a pastor, and I just resigned from my position in a church about a month ago. And he smiled. A big, broad smile came across his face. He said, how would you like a room for $49 a night? <laughs> I didn't quite know what to say. I mean, I did get out. Yes. Y- y- yeah. I wouldn't say, what? What? Did I hear that right? Yeah. I said, that, wow, that would be awesome. D- do, I mean, do you do you go to church somewhere? Or? I kind of wanted to find out why. And as he told me a story, I realized... He was a Christ follower, and that was the lowest corporate rate they could give. They gave that to the employees. And when he finished telling me his story, I I, uh, looked at him and I said, "You know, you'd probably enjoy this." Before I came in here, I sat there in the parking lot and I prayed, "God, would you give me a room for fifty bucks a night?" And look what you did. And he just started laughing. I said, "No, why why are you laughing?" He said, "I beat God by a dollar." Now, that's the kind of shepherd, gracious shepherd, you and I serve. A shepherd who's aware, yeah, of the big things. But he's infinitely small and he's well aware of the little things and he loves to engage with his sheep. In fact, I'd love for you to watch the video screen to hear about a guy who found... Grace and restoration from that same shepherd. Watch the screen.
1: Something was going on at the home, and I uh, and I don't know what that was. Uh, and and my wife uh, seemed different. She was greeting me at the door, and she just she was just loving me. It's about that time she asked me to go to this this church, and this church was multicultural. And in the middle of the service. This 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 minister said, uh, "If you believe in God, who are you to dare to believe that He can't restore your marriage?" I didn't hear anything else, but I played back each part of that, the entire service. I just wrestled with that the whole time, and then I thought, if all this is true, then can He really restore this marriage? And I thought, well, that that that's the only part that I wasn't. Um, that i couldn 't really accept, but i couldn 't really refudiate either, so it was the first time that that just that just penetrated my being in a in a unique way, and I thought, Wow, and so I went and I wrote a letter to the lady I was having an affair with that night and said i can 't do this I love you, I love you more than anybody i've ever loved um and but but i can 't keep doing this i i I've got to get some things sorted out, and strange enough, Kim, that very same night, after I came home, said to me, are you having an affair? And I said, I'm not currently having an affair, because I felt like I had just broken it off. Yeah, you had an affair, is what she actually asked me, and I just, I just told everything. I. She asked questions, and i just I just answered everything I told everything she If she wanted specifics i 'd give her specifics. I had no emotion. I felt like the weight of the world had just been removed from me, and yet I was telling the woman that I had married about all these vile truths of who I was as a husband she just uh, she just broke down it just uh, it just devastated her. Um, Part of me wanted her to leave me Um, and I thought that was probably just the easiest thing for everybody uh, was just to have her have her leave me she got she went out and she got a lot of counsel she saw a lot of counsel and um, and someone asked do you love him and she said I don't know why but I do. And uh, and the woman said, well, fight. Fight for your marriage. And, And she did.
0: You know, we all face difficult, painful, confusing times in life. Wouldn't it be great... To have a shepherd walk with you through times like that. All you've got to do is say, God, I I want you to be my shepherd. And he'll begin moving in close and I guarantee you he'll begin revealing himself to you. Or maybe you've been a Christ follower for a while and you feel like life is out of control. I don't like the circumstances I see in front of me. It's as if I don't have a shepherd. I want to remind you, the psalm says that He will walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't allow us to avoid that valley. He walks us through the midst of it. And maybe for you, you just need to say, God, I'm going to quit defining my life by my circumstances. Instead, I'm going to define it by You and Your care for me. And you need to lean in even further into your Shepherd who will get you through whatever it is that you face. Father, thank you that we can depend upon you. That you are a kind shepherd and that you know what's best and you know exactly how to engage each one of our hearts in each situation. Would you continue to move in close and may people here who are seeking you find you as the kind, gracious, merciful shepherd that you really are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you back next week.